0: Let's turn to the book of Malachi as we continue looking at the Minor Prophets. This is the last Minor Prophet. We began the last time I spoke to you in the final Minor Prophet that's listed in the Old Testament, Malachi. And if you remember, the message I brought last time was Malachi's message of mercy. And that encompasses basically the first five verses there in Malachi. Tonight... It's kind of a contradiction to that first message of mercy. He has a somewhat merciless message to the ministers. And of course, they're referred to as priests in the Old Testament. But those that were in charge of the spiritual well-being and spiritual health of the people. It's a fairly merciless message to the ministry. And so the title of the message is Malachi's Message to Ministers. And of course, when I say ministers, again, the Old Testament minister was the priest who handled the Levitical law, taught the Levitical law, and also carried out the sacrifices and managed and directed, if you will, the worship in the Old Testament. So it's a fairly merciless message. Let's begin reading in verse 6 of Malachi 1. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, and this is the Lord speaking through the prophet, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests, that despise my name. And ye say, the priests say, wherein have we despised thy name? So after he presents that beautiful picture of how there's mercy towards God's people. He spoke of loving Jacob and hating Esau. He turns his ire, if you will, his anger towards the ministry. And this is uh, something that is very relevant to us today. It ought to help us to see where God's eye is often in terms of the management and carrying on of the worship of God and the teaching of the Word of God in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's not a priest anymore. It's a minister, a pastor, teacher, could be an evangelist. And so he directs to the priest. He says, a son honors his father. That's just a given. And then a servant honors his master. That's a given. But if I'm a father and if I'm a, a master, where's my honor? See? And he says, oh, priest, you despise my name. Now, as I've studied this and I've had quite a bit of time to study this and read about it. These are my conclusions about overall about what's really going on here in the priesthood and what the problem is. I have concluded that there's basically two problems going on here. If you read what he's teaching here, he talks about what they're doing wrong. And a lot of the symptoms of the problem. So basically the two problems that I perceive in studying this. is Number one is that the priests were either afraid or intimidated or refused to teach the people what they needed to know. So that the people could do right. Now if you can't see the relevance of that in the day and time that we're living in. Where many so called or actually called men of God. That are just afraid. You know, they're afraid sometimes to teach the truth because they might lose their salaried position. Or they might be afraid to teach the truth because the people of God that they teach to might not like what they're teaching. And, And I've always said, you know, what's the purpose of preaching if it's not to not only, not really step on our toes, but to step on our heart, to get to the heart of the matter? You know, that's the purpose of preaching. That's why God designed preaching. But we're human. And we're all sinners, and sometimes that's offensive. And I conclude from reading this that the ministry was just not plucking up the courage to teach what they needed to, to know. And they were complaining because the people were not doing right. But it was their own fault for not teaching it. That's one problem. The second problem is even more major than that. And it is this, that the, the, the lives of the ministry, the lives of those priests were a disaster You'll see as we continue here. Let's look in again in verse 6. He says, where's my honor, O priests? And the priests say, wherein have we despised thy name? How have we despised you? And the Lord answers these questions. I don't know if you remember when I spoke first about Malachi. There's questions all through Malachi. And most of them are, how? You know that God says, you're doing this. And the people say, how? How are we doing wrong? And a lot of this is the ministry. The priests say, how? How are we polluting thy name? How are we doing this? You know, they are clueless. They are absolutely clueless when it comes to their sin. And I think that's a lot of the way that things are today. God's people are just clueless that this is a sin or that is a sin. You say, well, that's bad. They ought to change. I pray to God that the ministry will teach what they need to know to change. Because if you're not hearing this is right and this is wrong, how are you going to know So a minister could complain and moan and groan and mulligrub all day long. But the question is, is he teaching what God calls upon him to teach so the people can change? And then on top of that, is he changing? You see? They say, how have we despised your name? What? We we love you, Lord. How are we despising your name? He says, "Ye ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? Polluted thy altar. And they say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Now, this is where I begin to clue in. The ministry is saying that. This is where I begin to clue in that the, the ministry is complaining. And they're not teaching the people. Because what the people are doing is inappropriate. And they're complaining. I can't believe the people are doing this. But they're not teaching the people. They're saying, it's just contemptible to serve the Lord. If that's a big word... Let me try to put it to you this way. Someone who is held in contempt of court is disrespecting the court. They might be in violation of a court order that the judge has entered and they are held in contempt. Or they could be in court and displaying themselves in a way or acting in a way that is a dishonor or a disrespect to the court. And the court says, I'm holding you in contempt. So it is a respect issue. So the the priests are saying the people are not respecting God. They're complaining about the people. The, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Nobody cares. And at the same time, they're being contemptible towards the Lord. And he says, if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is this not evil? And if ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it up now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? <laughs> you see what's going on here? They were offering the blind the lame, So they, they go out to the flock. The Lord required the best and the first. The firstlings of the flock. As long as you gave the Lord the firstlings of the flock and the best of the flock. So think about it. You could go out there and you see the firstling. The first lamb that's born for the season. And you could look at it and it might be lame. And it might have a blemish on it. And the Lord said, okay, pass over that one. And go to the next one that is not blemished or lame. Because the Lord deserves the best. You see? She said, well, that's such a waste. i given you this example before, you know, my dad was a cattleman and he never went out there to the flock, to the herd and picked out the prettiest, most beautiful little calf and said, okay, we're going to take that one to sacrifice. No, he was looking at that one and said, that's gonna, that one's going to bring a good, fetch a good price at market when it grows up and becomes healthy and we sell it. You see, it's a healthy calf. You know, we, we don't think about it in terms of the Jews would go out to the flock and they was, there's a great looking lamb. It doesn't have any blemishes. It doesn't have any marks on it. That one is the one we're going to kill. <laughs> you, you lost the money for that lamb. You lost the, the food that would come from that lamb. You lost the clothing that would come from that lamb, from the wool of that lamb. You see, because God deserves the best. We don't think that way in terms of herds of cattle and whatever. But that was required under the law. And so the people, the farmers, the herdsmen were going out there and they'd look and they'd say, well, that one, I know that's the first one and it doesn't have a blemish, but that that will fetch a great price and that'll help me take care of my family. And that'll bring, you know, food and it will bring clothing into our family. So let's pass over. Now, here's one over here that's lame. He's limping around. We'll, We'll just use that one for the sacrifice. See, they were cutting corners and the priests were going, this isn't right. They're not supposed to be doing that, but they wouldn't preach about it. They wouldn't do anything about it. They they would take the lambs that were lame and blind in and say, okay, well, we'll just sacrifice them anyway if that's what the people are bringing. And the Lord said, you take that contemptible sacrifice, you take that lame lamb and that blind lamb and you go offer it to the governor and see how he feels about it. If the governor showed up at your house, or you had a banquet that you were preparing for the governor of this state or any state, you would put on the dog, as we say. You would put the best out there. You'd put the best out for the governor. You know, we wouldn't serve the governor, if, if the, unless it was the governor's favorite, we wouldn't serve the governor chitlins. You know, we wouldn't serve the governor something subpar to what the best you could possibly serve could be. We wouldn't serve the governor something that that the governor would go away and say, that was strange. You know, that just that just wasn't very good. And God says, go serve the governor what you're serving me for sacrifice and see what the governor says. Y'all see that. So he's he's kind of I don't want to say he's toying with them because this is not he's not playing around, but he's taunting them, if you will. Go serve the governor with this lame sacrifice and see how the governor responds to that. I don't think the governor will respond very well. So the root of the problem here is we find in verse 12, if you look at in verse 12 and 13, he says, but you have profaned my table. You have profaned it in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted. The priests were saying because of what the people are doing, the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even his meat is contemptible. This is just, it's not even worth our time. And then they say in verse 13, behold, the priests say, what a weariness it is. Oh, it's just a weariness for us to serve God and deal with these people. You see how down in the mouth they are. You see how they're poor mouthing the people when their own lives are a wreck And ye have snuffed at it. That means to breathe heavy. That means when the people would bring in these lame and blind sacrifices, instead of calling their hand on it in a loving way, I'm sorry, we we just can't accept this sacrifice because it's not up to par. It's not up to the law. Instead, they'd take them in and they'd go, Here we go again. That's what that means, snuffed at it. They breathed heavy. Oh, what a... What a contemptible thing this is that we're having to deal with what these people are bringing. See, the root of the problem is that they were either afraid, intimidated, or just refused because they were too lazy to teach the people the truth. He says, Behold what a weariness it is, and ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver. And he goes on and he curses the priests. This is a terrible thing. (laughs) The ones that are in charge of the spiritual well-being of the people. And when I say that, I'm not talking about in charge of making children of God. I think you good old Baptists understand that. We're talking about them being in charge of instructing children of God. And in this case, instructing the nation. Instructing this restored province of Judea and Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord gets really serious right here. He says, and now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. That's pretty plain, isn't it? So when Malachi preached this, you think there was any question about who this was for? Now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. You think God's serious about this? On one hand, you might say, well, this is kind of, that's kind of a downer that's coming from God. It is, but you know, there, there are some things about the preaching of the gospel and the instruction of the Word of God that they definitely feel like downers. They definitely are downers. But the purpose of God tearing down is to build up. See? He says, behold, it gets worse. He says, behold, I will corrupt your seed. Now watch this. And spread dung upon your faces. That's not very pleasant, is it? Even the dung of your solemn feasts. And one shall take you away with it. That's a very, that's a direct insult to the priests. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you that my covenant might be with Levi. You know where the priests come from, right? It was of the tribe of Levi. So the Lord's going all the way back hundreds of years to point back basically to the days of Moses and Aaron. You know, Moses was of the tribe of Levi. Levi. And Moses was raised up by God to be a faithful priest, even though Moses had his own issues, did he not? He says, my covenant was with him of life and peace. And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. That's a lot of fear and afraid. He says, I covenanted with the tribe of Levi for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. Now the the wording there is very interesting because feared me, it means to reverence. And then the word fear also means to respect. And then the last word there, afraid, it means to lay down before someone in respect. So you might read it like this. I gave this covenant to him, to Levi, for the reverence with which he respected me and he laid down before me. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So here, this is the type of priest that God wants. One that would reverence him and respect him and and lay down before him in honor before the Lord. The law of truth was in his mouth. You see, he's instructing them on what a real preacher is, a real priest in this situation, a real minister. He says the law of truth was in his mouth. The things he spoke were truthful, and he also spoke the truth of the law, see? And iniquity was not found in his lips. He was not going around... On Sunday, you know, talking one way, and then on Monday, speaking a different way. He wasn't double-tongued. He wasn't double-minded either. What you saw on Sunday, or in this case, what you saw on Saturday, you know, what you saw at the feast was what you got at home. He wasn't living a double life. That's a real problem for a lot of people. You know, they categorize their lives and they live a double life. They look really good when they clean up and brush up and calm up and, you know, fix up. (laughs) But in reality, their life is a shambles. That's a double life. See, the the priesthood, what you should expect out of a minister of the gospel is not to lead a double life. And, you know, this day and time, it gets more and more difficult to lead double lives. What with social media and all that. I mean, it's just a matter of time before somebody's double life is exposed. If they're living one way and trying to act like another way. Because there's a camera going everywhere, just about everywhere you go. See? As a matter of fact, I think there was some show I've never watched. It, but There's some show, you know, that where they would film people in certain situations, you know, and they didn't know they were being filmed and all of that, and you'd, you'd get to the truth of what they were really like, you know, when when they're in, they were in the fire or when they were, you know, I like the old saying, you know, the heat shows the heart, and that's the case with all of us. When the heat of life, when the things that get hot in life come to us, it shows what our hearts are made of. And the Lord says, a true priest. And this Levitical priesthood is one that would not lead a double life. Notice it says that he walked with God in peace and equity and did turn away, turn many away from iniquity. Is that not the bottom line of what the ministry is all about? In the Old Testament it was that way, and in the New Testament it was that way. The preaching of the gospel and the, the design of the law in the Old Testament, it was designed to turn people away from iniquity. Iniquity is just sin. Recognize what sin is. Declare boldly, courageously, and humbly what sin is and call people away from that sin. That's the purpose of the ministry. It was the purpose of the priesthood. And in the New Testament, the ministry of the gospel, the ministers, that's the equivalent in the New Testament of what the priests were in the Old Testament. He says the law of truth was in his mouth. Iniquity was not in his lips. He was not leading a double life. And he walked with God in peace and equity. And he turned many away from iniquity. I believe that this is a primary reference to Moses and possibly to Aaron too. I believe that's a primary reference to them, but it means in general that the priesthood, that's what it's supposed to be all about. Verse 7, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. Did you notice that? If the priest is walking with the law of truth in his mouth, fearing God, iniquity is not in his lips. It doesn't mean that he's perfect by any means. But his, his tendency, his manner of life is to walk with God in peace and equity. He, and he's turning many away from the truth. And the, and the lips, his lips keep knowledge of the truth. It says they should seek the law at his mouth. He would have questions uh, asked of him. What do I do in this situation? How do I live my life to honor God? That's what the Word of God is designed to do. And that's what the ministry is designed for, to answer questions. Is that not what Jesus did in His perfect ministry? He was constantly being asked questions, and He was was the ultimate answer. Now watch this. Verse 7, And they should seek the law at His mouth, for He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. What an amazing and humbling instruction there he is the messenger of the lord of hosts the word messenger right there it means to dispatch as a deputy he is the deputy of god the priests in the old testament were the deputies of god you know you might look at it this way the lord is the sheriff he's the high sheriff and those those ministers those priests in the old testament were his deputies to go around and do what he commanded them to do I've got a lot of experience with deputies and the sheriff. I've had experience with uh, past sheriffs and the current sheriff over in our county. You know, those deputies wear a badge and they work for the sheriff. They're supposed to do the bidding of the sheriff. And here, the priesthood was to be like a deputy dispatched by God to go and do the bidding of God. And they were intimidated or afraid to teach what the law said. Do you understand what kind of a revival America would experience if the ministry today viewed themselves as being dispatched as deputies from God and preached the Word of God and didn't preach, you know, some type of opinion or thoughts, but just. Took the Word of God and just preached the Word of God. All of your revivals throughout history have been based on the teaching and the preaching of the true Word of God. The Great Awakening was that way. The Protestant Reformation was that way. Remember, you're not a Protestant. Baptists are not Protestants. They didn't protest or come out of anything. But what an amazing, incredible revival occurred when the Protestant Reformation did occur. And we went back. people went back to the Word of God. You're not going to see revival from Congress. You're not going to see revival from passing laws. I'm glad if good laws are passed. But true revival comes from the preaching of the Word of God. And listen, I'm not saying anything negative against anything that people are calling revival today out there in the world across America. I'm not going to say anything negative about that because I haven't been there and I haven't seen it myself. But I will say this. Whatever is going on, wherever it's happening... It must involve the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God, not someone being intimidated or afraid to speak the truth. It must involve the preaching of the Word of God or it's not true revival. Amen. See? True revival, as God designed it, comes from returning to the Word of God. And it requires a ministry that is not afraid to preach that and to suffer the consequences of whatever may come because of doing that. It would have caused a lot of stir. If they had started turning away people, that sheep, that lamb is blind. That lamb is lame. We will not accept that lamb. Sorry. That's all it took was just a few little words. And the people would have huffed and puffed and said, well, but you know what? There would have been some of the people that would have been convicted in their hearts. Some shepherds would have said, you know, that is right. That's what the law says. And I pushed off the good firstling of my flock to the back 40 and pretended I didn't see it so I could sacrifice and say, all I've got is this little lame one and this little blind one. And they might be convicted in their heart and go and sacrifice in a way that honored God. I want to back up and show you one little verse in verse 10 of the first chapter. This is startling. This is startling in chapter one, verse 10, as the Lord is addressing the priest. He says, who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? You know what that means? It basically means the Lord is saying, I would rather you close the doors to my temple than worship and sacrifice the way that it's going. He says, is there anybody among you that would just go take the key to the temple doors and the gates and just go lock them and close up shop until somebody is really ready to worship me? That's startling, isn't it? You say, wouldn't the Lord just kind of want them all just to kind of go along, to get along, and just kind of have an ecumenical type melting pot? And oh, if it's a little lame one here, if it's a little blind one there, oh, if if somebody's living their life in a way that's inappropriate and nobody's calling them on the carpet for that, you know, wouldn't it be all right just to kind of go along? The Lord said, shut my doors unless you're going to do it right. That's interesting, isn't it? That's how much it means to God. He said, I'd rather you not be doing it. You say, can that really be? Yes, it can be. Because the Lord shut the doors to His own temple for 70 years. Because they refused to worship Him like He commanded. See, the Lord doesn't play around with church. The Lord doesn't play around with worship. He said, is there a priest among you that has enough courage to just go and lock the door and throw away the key for a while? Until enough repentance comes along. To where you're actually ready to worship God. This is serious business to God. Back in the second chapter, he says this in verse, after verse 7, he says, For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but ye are departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. These are some serious allegations, are they not? Therefore, have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. So the, the priests were saying, oh, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Nobody's doing anything that they should be doing. And the Lord says, because you have done that and you have not plucked up the courage to preach the law to them. He says, now I'm putting a curse upon you and you're going to be contemptible to the people. You see how the priest cursed turned back on themselves and the Lord cursed them. You get that? They were holding the service in contempt and the people in contempt and the Lord said, I'm going to hold you in contempt and the people are going to see you as base, which means the ministry just really doesn't have an impact. And and is that not kind of where we are today for the most part in general? You know, people are more interested in entertainment often than they are in just the, you know, the old fashioned Backwards preaching of the gospel. Isn't that interesting that? whatever tickles our fancy and whatever entertains us that that's what we're after and that's what we're dazzled by which is our human nature and the preaching of the gospel is just sort of sort of an afterthought you know it's something that just really doesn't really take the forefront and somebody would say well brother tim you're just preaching that because you are a preacher and you just feel that way i'm preaching that because that's what the word of god teaches that whenever the word of god and the preaching of the gospel takes a back seat then that's when things begin to fall apart and you say well but Preachers are held kind of in contempt today. They're just in a lot of places. They're just really not a factor. They just really don't impact the lives of people. That's exactly right. It's no different than Malachi. See, it's like the Lord has turned that curse back around. People, the preachers say, well, nobody really wants to hear preaching anymore, and then the preacher doesn't really have an impact in the lives of people. It's like the Lord has turned that Malachi curse right back on the preachers. See, God designed the preaching of the gospel. To feed the people of God. Remember he told Peter? He said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. It's the preaching of the gospel that brings revival. It's the preaching of the gospel that leads a child of God to repentance. It's the preaching of the gospel that teaches us how to sacrifice. So instead of the Lord saying, just shut the doors and throw away the key, I'd rather you not even try if you're not going to try it my way. The Lord says, I'm pleased with this because the ministry is teaching what it should teach. You see? He says, you've departed. Therefore, I've made you contemptible. Now, verse 11, he says, Judah hath dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. And the Lord is warming up to what one of the major underlying problems was. He began to talk about marriage. Marriage. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this ye have done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore. You see, there's somebody that's coming before the Lord, and they're crying out, and they're weeping, and they're covering the altar with their tears, but the Lord says, I won't hear it. You're not doing it in the right spirit. It's all for show. And you don't even understand anymore what I require of worship. He says, "I, I just, I won't accept it. And then verse 14. Yet you say, wherefore? What do you mean, Lord? We're crying for you. We're mourning in front of you. We're weeping. We're doing all of this for you. And he says, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. So the Lord begins to touch the real nerve of what's going on. They were divorcing their wives. They were putting their wives away. Just willy-nilly, for no cause. It was a common practice in those days. You get tired of your wife, get another one. Put her away and get another one. And this was going on in the ministry. You know, there was a time in America when the divorce rate was just almost nothing. Almost nothing. Look at the history of the last hundred years. You know, experts say, well, we're progressing. We're getting better. Are you kidding me? There's been more bloodshed in wars in the last century than it almost equals up to more bloodshed in wars than all of the centuries put together that there's any record of. And not on on top of that, you've had more babies murdered in abortion in that last hundred years than at any time in history. And then on top of that, you've got the divorce rate that's gone from nothing to just this incredible over 50%, even among evangelical Christians. What is going on here? I'm telling you, the ministry's not doing its job. That's what's going on. And here, in a similar situation, the ministry, they were the ones leading the charge for, with divorce. You see that? Now look, the word of God teaches that there are various causes and exceptions for divorce. But if you want to know how God feels about divorce, you can look down in verse 16. He says, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that He hateth putting away. It's the same thing basically that Jesus said when the Pharisees came to Him and said, You know, can a man put away his wife for any cause? That's over in the, the Gospels. And Jesus says, for the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you the precept of divorce. If you read that carefully, God suffered Moses to put that precept in there. It wasn't even the design of God because Jesus said in the beginning, he created male and female and the two shall become one in marriage and let no man put that asunder. And the ministry is leading the charge. The ministry has the highest level of divorce among the priests. So the Lord's really touching some nerves here. You say, how are we not living up to our charge as the priesthood? He says, because you're divorcing the wife of your youth. You're putting her away for no cause. Yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. See how God views marriage? The companion and the wife of the covenant that you made. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed? Look down at verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, for one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. What in the world does that mean? That means that God's view of what these men were doing with their wives and mistreating them and putting them away. I've been the domestic violence prosecutor for about the last 15 years in our county. We got a grant several years ago and that task force was created. And so I've been prosecuting for a number of years in domestic violence, which has to do with husbands, wives, family members, whatever, boyfriend, girlfriend, so forth. Been doing that for a long time. I've actually tried jury trials that involved felony charges you know, against different people that had committed terrible crimes against a spouse or a boyfriend, girlfriend, or a family member. But until I read this, I don't really think about divorce as domestic violence. God does. He says, you have committed domestic violence against your spouse by putting her away. Domestic violence. Again, the word of God gives exceptions and reasons whenever somebody gets a divorce. There are certainly exceptions and reasons in there. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's telling them, you didn't have a reason. You didn't have a cause. You had no justification. You committed domestic violence against your spouse when you treated them this way. And it does not make the Lord happy. This is the underlying root of the problem. Number one, they were not plucking up the courage to preach and teach to the people and they were complaining about it and not doing anything about it. And and number two, and more importantly, their lives were in shambles. Complete shambles. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. See, I'm tired of hearing you talk. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied Him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? They were going around saying, why doesn't God judge these people for doing what they're doing? You know what I believe in reading that? I believe the seeds of Phariseeism were planted in the priesthood right here in the days of Malachi. That sounds like a Pharisee, doesn't it? Why doesn't God take care of these sinners? Why didn't he just send a lightning bolt and destroy them? That's legalism and that's Phariseeism and that's Matthew 7, where they're not willing to look to take the beam out of their own eye, and they're plucking at the specks in somebody else's eye. The seeds of Phariseeism are right here. As we close here tonight, look at Nehemiah the 13th chapter, because I want I want you to get a picture of what's going on. This is a, a vivid picture of what Malachi is preaching about. And by the way, it's very likely, very possible that Malachi was preaching in the days that we consider here in Nehemiah 13, the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. And look at verse 4. This is Nehemiah who was the wall builder around Jerusalem and he had been in the courts of Babylon and came back out here to the middle of nowhere to handle this project. And this is a time... He goes back and forth a couple times from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And here it says in verse 4 that Eliashib, the priest, and we're talking about the priest, right? Eliashib, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. If anybody reads the Bible or you read the account of what's going on here, you'll recognize who Tobiah is. It says earlier on when they were building the wall, it says that there were about three guys that came and withstood them and fought against them and even sent a delegation back to Babylon. One of those guys was Tobiah. There was Sanballat and Tobiah and another guy. And watch this now. This guy is not, he's not a Judean. He's not a Jew. Here the priest is in league with this guy And he prepared for him a great chamber, wherefore aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of the corn, the new wine, the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, the singers, the porters, and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. Nehemiah said this was going on, and I wasn't there, or I would have done something about it. And thank God for a preacher like Nehemiah. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days I tamed leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and understood of the evil that Eliashev did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. You see, he's upset because the priest has gotten in league with somebody who's not even a Jewish person, doesn't know anything about the law, doesn't care anything about the things of God. They just want a status. You know what it says? He says, "I cast forth all the household stuff of to out of the chamber." I think that's literal. I think he went in there and without regard for the politics of it and without fear of the consequence of it, he went in there and he got all of this stuff that the priests had allowed to come in there and just tossed it out and just let the Lord just left it in the hands of the Lord. That's what's going on in the days of Malachi. That's the type of thing that he's preaching about. Look at verse eleven. They cleansed the chamber. They took all of that stuff out. And he says, Then contended I with the rulers. Verse 11. Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place and brought all Judah, the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil and the treasuries. If you've read the book of Malachi, the third chapter, you'll remember. Maybe that there he talks about how the, the tithe was not being brought in. And that Nehemiah is addressing these things. If you turn over to the last page in the book of Nehemiah, Verse 23, he says, In those days also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Amnon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. That sounds really mean. Spirited, doesn't it? And made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. You see, Nehemiah is addressing the problem. They were divorcing and marrying and giving in marriage and going through all of these things. And here is a priest who had this precious little wife that he married when he was young. And he goes, they go back to Jerusalem and there he sees one of these foreign women here. Maybe dresses different. Maybe looks different. Maybe seems more exciting to him. And so he just finds a reason to put away his wife. No reason at all. And so the ministry was leading the charge of this type of thing in those days not only were they afraid to preach and teach, you know, I, I think one of the reasons they were afraid to preach and teach the truth is because deep down in their hearts, they knew that their lives were shambles. How can I tell somebody to straighten up when my life is a mess? Church, you must expect the ministry to never lead a double life and to not categorize their life. Well, here's my church life. Here's my work life. Here's, you ought to be able to go into the workplace of the minister and see good things there and not go, oh my goodness, I can't believe he acts that way at work. You ought to come to my place of work and be able to see that I'm the same person that I am when I stand here in the pulpit before you. Now, if you come to court sometime and I'm having to get kind of ugly and cross-examine somebody you know, on the witness stand, don't hold that against me. That's just part of the job. You understand? But I'm not cussing them out and I'm not belittling or berating them. I'm just doing my job. You ought to demand of the ministry that stands before you. You ought to expect the ministry to preach the word of God and not be afraid to preach it. I'm so thankful for you, for all of you, because you've told me many times, I sometimes come down out of the pulpit and I'll I'll be sweating, sweating bullets, as they say, because I think, did I go too far with that? Did I push that a little too far? Was I mean-spirited with that? And some of the most difficult subjects that I've ever preached, inevitably, I've had several of you come to me and to make me feel better, you'll say, Brother Tim, we needed that. We needed that. That is so encouraging. But it's not always that way. Sometimes people of God will say, you've offended me. I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm not going to listen to that kind of thing. And if it's me as a minister who's being mean-spirited, then shame on me. But if I'm speaking the truth in love and I'm telling you I love you, and the reason I'm talking about this is because God has laid it on my heart, and this is an issue that needs to be dealt with, and the Word of God teaches this, it's not my opinion, it's not my thoughts, it's what the Word of God teaches, then we ought to praise God that the ministry is not afraid to boldly speak the Word of God. And when it comes to the lives of the minister, remember a minister is never going to be perfect ever because he's a sinner. But when it comes to the life of the minister, we should not expect the ministry to lead a double life. We should not expect that. We should expect the ministry to lead a sound, straightforward, what you get is what you see. And I don't mean take it or leave it. I don't mean that. What you get is what you see in the sense of he's not duplicitous. He doesn't have a double life. He is following the Lord the best that he can. He's a sinner. He makes mistakes. But in this case here, that was not the case. And I fear in our country today, it is often not the case. The ministry is looked at as some kind of hierarchy or some kind of thing that's above. I want you to know the true ministry of the gospel is below the people of God. It's to serve the people of God. It's not there to stroke the ego of the minister. It's not a performance or an entertainment. It is the burden of the man of God to preach the Word of God. Hold the ministry to that standard and the church of God will endure it. I hope that's been profitable tonight and I hope that we can be blessed by Malachi's message to ministers.